Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. The following podcast is not meant for children or for liberals, even though that's pretty much the same thing these days. But that's what we're here for. Somebody's got to keep these brats in line. Anyway, you've been warned. It's the right opinion. These days, our media's either incompetent or malevolent. They don't believe in heaven, but they acting like they haven't sent. Knowing the truth is way harder than telling it. We gotta work harder, gotta be more intelligent. Sometimes we just gotta grab a mic and start yelling shit. We're living in times when it's hard to stay relevant. Be the elephant in the room in a room full of elephants. Be the elephant in the room in a room full of elephants. Boom. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to The Right Opinion right here on The Right Opinion .podbean.com. I am your host, Harrison Bergeron. Happy to have you all aboard as always. If you aren't doing so already, be sure to subscribe to the right opinion.podbean.com or just search the right opinion on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. It's the logo that's black and white and red all over like newspapers used to be. You know, newspapers like the Washington Times that thought it would be cool to steal the name of my podcast. Just ignore them. Come on over here. I got the right opinion for you. And for that matter, I've got a lot of stuff to talk about. And you're going to want to be subscribed because there's going to be more episodes like this. We are taking the deep dive. I've talked about this for a while. Spygate, Obamagate, whatever it is you want to call it now. Uh, We've gotten so much information out as a result of the events surrounding General Flynn. So I wanted to kind of take this opportunity to give you, you know, the nuts and bolts of Spygate and using the Flynn case to kind of show you exactly the type of deception and malfeasance that was going on inside the FBI, inside the DOJ, and perhaps even the Oval Office. Plenty to get to. Uh, this episode is going to be mostly about General Flynn. I am going to circle back around to Carter Page and George Papadopoulos and uh, and Roger Stone and Paul Manafort eventually. But Michael Flynn, it's the story of the day, right, other than the C word. And um, General Flynn obviously was, um, he was he was found or he pled guilty to uh, to lying to the FBI. His sentencing was dragged out for a long, long, long time. And then it got to the point where he got frustrated and he switched legal counsel. And that legal counsel said, wait a second, there's more to this story here. We're going to ask for some documents. Those documents were asked for, and then the government decided to retaliate by taking off the table a zero prison plea bargain to adding, you know, potentially six months in prison to Michael Flynn for having the audacity to want to defend himself. And then his lawyers got even more pissed off by doing by them doing that. They retaliated and said, we're going to pull the guilty plea altogether. And then ultimately the DOJ determined based on information they found from internal notes from the FBI that this case probably should not be even brought up and we're going to go ahead and we're just going to let him go. Um, you know, we're going to drop the case because it, it they, because what they found is so insanely corrupt. And I'm going to describe a lot of it 
in this episode, but more of it in the second episode, because I'm going to dive deeper into the legal end of what happened to General Flynn. But let's dive into early on the origins of the Russia investigation. So the FBI claims that the investigation was started at the end of July because of a tip that came in from Australian diplomat Alexander Downer. Now, just to give you a brief on Downer, basically what he knew or thought he knew or, or told the State Department that eventually told the FBI is basically there's a gentleman named George Papadopoulos. He's one of the people that there was a FISA warrant out on him. That FISA warrant came as a result, strangely enough, of, of information I guess Carter Page might have had. There's really no logic as to why exactly they drew the FISA warrant on Papadopoulos other than he was part of the campaign. Um, Carter Page was doing some stuff. And then they decided to pull the FISA warrant on Page or Papadopoulos. I got to get back into the details on that one. But basically, both of them were, had a FISA out on them. And Papadopoulos met with a guy. He's a Maltese professor named Joseph Mifsud. This is way back before the election. And Mifsud had said to him that the Russians have Hillary's emails and had suggested to Papadopoulos, like, maybe they could work together, the Trump campaign and the Russians. And Papadopoulos really didn't pay it much mind, certainly didn't move forward with any sort of action with Mifsud in regards uh, in regards to working with the Russians in involvement in, in the election meddling that was going on there. But Papadopoulos did have a few drinks in London with Australian diplomat Alexander Downer and let loose the fact that Mifsud had told him that the Russians have Hillary's emails or they have dirt on Hillary. He, he denies saying anything of that note to this day. Uh, but again, there was a few drinks involved. I mean, I'm going to cut Papa D some slack on this one here. Maybe he let loose the fact that Mifsud told him about this. But being that the Trump campaign in no way acted on it, it really isn't all that big a deal. But Downer decided to turn it into a big deal, and he eventually called the FBI. Now, he claims he didn't call the FBI until late July, which is when the FBI wants you to think they started the investigation based on that tip. This is false. This is a cover story because they really opened the case based on the Steele dossier, a wholly unverified piece of opposition research composed of Russian disinformation from Russian intelligence officers at best, or a complete fabrication from Christopher Steele at worst, which was paid for by Hillary's campaign, the DNC, and possibly our own government. Now, how do we know it wasn't the Australian tip? Well, because they got that tip back in May, but they didn't open the investigation formally until July 31st. Now, how do we know that this information was passed along back in May and not in July like they're claiming that it is or that it was? Well, the lovers here gave it away with their stupid text exchange. And yes, when I say the lovers, I of course mean FBI attorney Lisa Page and special agent Peter Strzok of the FBI. They were infamously having an affair and texting each other about their coup because they're not particularly bright. By the way, texting each other on government-issued phones, just to clarify how unbright they are. So they are very, very, you know, I, I want to say open in their text messages with one another. They seem to not understand that these are government-issued phones. And by the way, these are people that not only share a workplace where they can exchange ideas without having to put them on electronic communication, but they also share a bed. So you would think that they can have these types of conversations over some pillow talk, but I guess they thought 
A, there was no way that these text messages would ever be released to the public, and they probably thought that because B, they never thought Donald Trump would become the president and have control over the Justice Department and the intelligence community today, and that's obviously what led to a lot of this stuff coming out. So on May 10th, Papadopoulos met with Downer. That is not in dispute. On May 11th, 2016, Downer potentially, just potentially, this this I don't have verified as a fact, but when you hear the story, I think it's going to become quite clear what I'm talking about here. Downer supposedly called the State Department late in July. That's what he's saying. But there's a text exchange here from Strzok and from Page that indicates that Downer may have called the State Department well before that. As a matter of fact, Downer may have called them the day after meeting with Papadopoulos, which would make a lot of sense. Now, Downer's story is, I uh, I met with Papadopoulos, he mentioned this, and I didn't really think anything of it until weeks later when I started seeing there was all this information about the Russians hacking and trying to interfere in the election, and then I called the State Department. Bullshit. Malarkey. Poppycock. Just not even, doesn't even square with reality, right? Like, if you, as an international diplomat, happen to hear that there was some interference or potentially interference going on on behalf of the Russians um, in the American election, why would you sit on that information for weeks and weeks and weeks? I mean, obviously, he probably picked up the phone the very next day and called the U.S. State Department and said, look, I just talked to this Papadopoulos guy. He works for the Trump campaign. He said something about the Russians having emails and wanting to help the campaign. That's not information you would sit on, and I don't believe he did. Because on May 11th, in the text message exchange between Page and Strzok, Strzok says to Page, DD calling state now. DD is Deputy Director Andrew McCabe. He will come up many times in this podcast. DD calling state now, Strzok says to Page. Page replies, ooh, I want to hear about it. You already talked to question mark? Page says, and crap, I've got to go in 30 or so because she's got somewhere else she's got to go. Strzok says, canceled blank to sit in on this. So she's asking, are you all ready to, you all ready to talk to somebody? And he says, no, I canceled that somebody to sit in on this call between the deputy director and the state department that just so happens to be taking place 24, within 24 hours of Papadopoulos meeting with Alexander Downer in London at a bar, had a few drinks, mentioned something about Russia. So it is more than likely, I mean, these two are all excited. Ooh, want to hear about it. The day after the meeting, the State Department is calling, or the Deputy Director is calling the State Department, who likely told him, hey, we got a call about something related to the Russia investigation or during, involving the election, involving Russia. We, you know, want to give you this information, give us a call. So Deputy Director calls them. Page and Strzok are all giddy about it because I think they already know what's about to exchange hands there, and that's information that will give them a precipice to at least begin to think about opening an investigation into the Trump campaign. And mind you, these are people who all hate Trump, who don't want him to get elected. Up to this point, I don't even think they think it's possible, but they start to get more and more weary as we get closer and closer to the election, and that makes them more and more desperate, and that is what leads them to take the actions that they ultimately take. So Downer meets with Papadopoulos, 
And the next day, McCabe is on the phone with the State Department. These two knuckleheads can't stop drooling over the possibilities. Downer claims that he didn't call the State Department until July. But why would these two, why would he have waited two months to say anything? Uh, again, I, I kind of went over that. Um, but then the dossier itself comes in right around the end of July, and that is when they started the investigation. So come hell or high water, whether or not my hypothesis is correct here about Downer informing uh, the FBI in the middle of May, either way, the Downer call was clearly not enough to open an investigation unto itself. They were going to need some semblance of corroborating evidence, some second source that told them that they were on the right path, and that was the Steele dossier. So whether they got the dossier first or the tip first, it's really inconsequential because, frankly, the tip would have never been enough to actually do anything by itself. It was the dossier that solidified this as a case that they could actually open and begin investigating based on this independent research, quote-unquote. So that dossier, by the way, the FBI still claims to this day the official story is that they did not see the dossier until September. That, too, is unequivocally a lie, as there was um, there was an on-the-record um, there was an on-the-record testimony from FBI agent Matt Gaeta, who I believe is actually in the FBI offices in London, and he testified that the FBI definitely had this dossier before September. Could have been back as far back as August, according to him, but I will postulate that it goes as far back as July because there's a litany of evidence to suggest that the FBI are working with evidence that only resides in the dossier, and that is what is pushing them forward, not to mention just a series of, of ridiculous conversations that went back and forth between Fusion GPS and the FBI. Uh, Fusion GPS happens to employ Nellie Orr, whose husband happens to work at the FBI. I'm sure that's all just a convenient coincidence. I'm going to dive more into those parts of the origin in future episodes, but for the purposes of General Flynn, I just wanted to let you know kind of out the gate that they got, they likely got the Australian tip in May, they got the dossier at the end of July, and then they formally opened up the dossier, uh, the investigation based on having the dossier on July 31st. And just to reiterate the dossier, the dossier itself coming from an opposing political party's campaign should have been held up to the greatest possible scrutiny. You know, if you're the FBI and you're looking at it and you're going, man, this came from the opposition party's campaign, I mean, the information could still be valid. It's the same as the emails that leaked, right? It's, oh, this isn't good, but at the same time, the information in there might still be valid. So you would think that the FBI would hold that information if they were to use it for a formal counterintelligence investigation they would use that information, but they would test it. They would do everything they possibly could to verify it, to corroborate it in any way, shape, or form. They did not. As we will find out much later, I believe in episode two, but I'll give you the hint now, is that the Mueller team, when they came in in May of 2017, they came in and they started doing some investigative work finally. You know, this type of stuff that the Federal Bureau of Investigations was supposed to do in the first place. And they go to Steele's primary subsource, and Steele's primary subsource absolutely and adamantly denies any of the statements that he made to Steele. And the Mueller report, for some reason, even after that, or the Mueller investigation gets dragged out for another two years after knowing that the whole thing was completely bunk. Steele put together a report 
based on all these subsources. The FBI never interviewed any of the subsources, never bothered to verify any of the information in the dossier. They just took it at Steele's word and they just pushed forward because he was a quote-unquote reliable source. He was somebody who helped take down uh, some of the corruption in FIFA, the, the soccer organization. So he was considered, um, you know, a trusted source. So they just took him at his word as opposed to actually verifying any of it. Mueller's team goes to try to verify it, realizes immediately that the whole thing is bullshit, but still continues to investigate for a full two years after that. So here's why it's important why they opened the investigation, how they opened the investigation, and most importantly, when they opened the investigation. A lot of the information that you're going to be getting from this podcast and from Michael Flynn Part 2 is from the Dan Bongino show, is from the research that he and his team and the people that he follows and his sources have been working on for years. So I'm going to let Dan explain to you right now exactly why it is important to know why, when, and how the FBI opened its investigation because it kind of shows their hand. But I'm going to let Mr. Bongino explain it because he does so in such a fashion. He's been following this case for four years probably, and he gets it. He knows it inside and out, and here is exactly why these things are important before we dive in to the witch hunt of Michael Flynn. So I thought you didn't hear about the Australian tip that allegedly started this case, which is all nonsense. You started on the fake dossier. I thought you didn't hear about it to July. You admit you got it from the State Department. Why the day after the meeting you're talking about that the Australians tipped you off about, the day after, it happened on May 10th. Why on May 11th are they texting each other? Ooh, the deputy director, Andy McCabe, is on the phone with the State Department. Now, this is juicy. Let's sit on this. What were they talking about? They were talking about the downer meeting. And they're hiding that because they still want you to believe they didn't get that information to July because they didn't open the case until July. But they opened the case because they got the dossier in July, not because of the May 10th notification that they learned about clearly the next day because they knew it was BS. It's all a fake story. All of it. This is all fake this is a three-pager show today folks now we have the beginning the case started because of dossier we have the fake reasons it started because of australia no you learned about australia in may no we didn't we learned about it in july why are you texting about it in may well because we did learn about it in may and we just didn't think it was a big deal then why'd you open up a case in july because we got the dossier, the dossier about collusion. You thought collusion was real? Yeah, we thought it was real. Then why'd you testify under oath? You had no evidence any of it was real. Oh, gee, sorry. Forgot about that. Yep. And later, actually, last week, if I'm not mistaken, 57 transcripts were released by the FBI or by the DOJ regarding the Mueller probe. And a lot of those were from the higher ranking people, the James Clappers, the John Brennans, the... Andrew McCabe's the uh, you know all of these different people that were heavily involved and high up in the intelligence community during all of this. Susan Rice, Sally Yates, who's in the D, who's a part of the DOJ. None of them had anything. None of them had ever seen any empirical evidence that the Donald Trump campaign was colluding with the Russians. 
yet they dragged this investigation on. They dragged four or five U.S. citizens through the mud, and that doesn't even include the president and his family. They dragged the presidency through a nonsensical two-year investigation and then followed it up with a bullshit impeachment because they couldn't get him the first time and they couldn't let Trump continue to have power, so they did everything they could. They tried to impeach him. They tried to get him removed from office. They failed again because these people are nothing short of fucking losers. That's what they've been doing their whole lives. That's how they came to the ideologies that they've come to, is that they're just losers and they don't know any better at this point. And so that brings me to the actual witch hunt. The Witch Hunt of Michael Flynn. This is part one. Let's start in July of 2016. On July 18th, 2016, to be exact, Michael Flynn is interviewed by Yahoo News' Michael Isakoff, who you may know the name. Michael Isakoff is a deep state hack who writes whatever the deep state tells him to write dispels Seth Rich rumors, at, you know, tries to anyway, and for that matter, was cited in the Carter Page FISA warrant. His work in Yahoo News was cited as corroborating the evidence that they themselves had found in the FBI. The problem is, is that Michael Isakoff got his information from the exact same source that the FBI got their information, that being one Christopher Steele. What we have on our hands here, folks, is an information laundering campaign where they did everything they could to make this dossier look legitimate, including leaking it to the press, who would then write stories about it so that they can then take their dossier, put it into a FISA warrant, and cite those news articles saying, look, Michael Isikoff from Yahoo News confirmed this story. Yeah, because he's looking at the exact same information as you are. That's not corroboration. That's a, a funhouse mirror. It doesn't it doesn't apply, but because Michael Isikoff cited anonymous sources, they didn't know that those anonymous sources were in fact Christopher Steele. So Michael Isikoff, deep stake media hack, interviewing Michael Flynn, July 18, 2016, and he starts asking him about a speaking engagement that he had at a Russia TV anniversary dinner. And Flynn doesn't shy away from the question. He gives a cogent answer. He tells Isakoff that he was there to deliver a message to Russia about how they need to utilize their influence over Iran to get them out of various proxy wars that they're fighting in the Middle East. He does admit that he was paid for the speaking engagement, but he was paid through a speaker's bureau, which which handles all the finance end of his various speaking engagements that he does all around the world, being a three-star general and a former director of, in of, of in uh, intelligence affairs. The dude's got some clout. People want to hear him speak. He speaks all over the place, and he gets paid, uh, you know, through appropriate channels by appropriate people. Now, he didn't hide the fact that he was there. He didn't hide the fact that he was paid, and he adamantly denies that he received any money from the Russian government, none of which, by the way, turned up in any of the investigations that I'm aware of. The only money everyone seems to be all that worried about when they look into Flynn is some money that he supposedly made lobbying on behalf of Turkey even though he was unaware that he was lobbying on behalf of Turkey. He was lobbying on behalf of a private company that just so happened to be shadow run by the government of Turkey or that one of his affiliates was working with the government of Turkey. He was unaware of it. And yeah, I guess you can make the claim that that's an easy claim to make, but there's no real proof that he knew about what was going on there. And when he did know and figure, at least when he suspected, he filed the appropriate firework and his lawyers screwed him up 
by, you know, filling out the paperwork incorrectly and putting him in quite a pickle. This despite the fact that his lawyers are supposedly some of the best FARA lawyers that this country has to offer, begging the question, was it just legal malpractice? Because in part two of this series, we will talk about just that. So many people have compared Michael Flynn speaking in Russia and making money to Bill Clinton speaking in Russia, um, which not only came with a whopping $500,000, but seemed to help Russians curry favor with the State Department to get them to sell 20% of America's uranium to Russia. Now, I thought, I was under the impression, I've been told several times that Russia was this big threat. So why would Hillary Clinton's State Department and the then director of the FBI, for that matter, Robert Mueller, have ever approved such a thing if Russia was this dire threat to American national security. They weren't. And they weren't until they thought that Donald Trump may have been in bed with them to try to rig an election. Russia wasn't that big a deal. Hillary Clinton went over there and met with their diplomats and brought a reset button. They were trying to reset relations between Russia and America. They thought that we could cooperate. Donald Trump thought the same thing, but as soon as those words came out of his mouth, it immediately became a terrible, terrible proposition, and he must be a traitor. He must be in Putin's pocket. It's all a bunch of nonsense. Russia is a virtually no threat to us outside of their nuclear arsenal, and let's face it, unless they too want to be a pancake, they will never, ever dare fire one of those things in our direction. Moving on, July 18th to the 19th, 2016. Justice Flynn is speaking uh, with Michael Isakoff about his time in Russia. Lisa Page and Peter Strzok are texting like wildfire. And many of these texts are still to this day heavily redacted. I'm looking at the screenshot here, and it's a, a series of texts on the 18th and the 19th, the entirety of which are blacked out for the most part here. I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a couple that go before or after in that date range, but there is a lot of text here that are just completely redacted, which is very weird because there's a lot of information that's been released from them that is not heavily redacted, begging the question who and what might they've been talking about if you're thinking to yourself maybe they were talking about Flynn as a result of this interview with deep state hack Michael Isikoff. I think you're on the right track, personally. Moving on from there, mid to late July 2016, the FBI receives the Steele dossier. They claim to um, not have received it until September, but we know from testimony from FBI agent Matt Gaeta that it was much earlier than that and that the thing had been distributed across D.C. in hopes that it would get itself into the right hands and, for that matter, gain some legitimacy along the way. It ended up in the hands of David Kramer, uh, who is an associate of John McCain. John McCain himself handed this dossier to the FBI, amongst others. John Brennan clearly had access to the memos from the dossier, if not the entire dossier himself. He would go on to later uh, brief the Gang of Eight about that particular bit of information there. So the information came in well before July 31st, 2016, when the FBI opens up Crossfire Hurricane, the investigation into election meddling on behalf of Russia in hopes of helping Donald Trump. Now, they could, they could have, you know, they could have opened this investigation back in May when they really got the downer tip, despite what they're telling you, but they didn't because the downer tip wasn't enough until they got the dossier, and the dossier just so happens to name people like Carter Page, people like Michael Flynn, people like Paul Manafort, people like George Papadopoulos, 
None of this information came directly from the downer tip, so they would have had to have had the dossier in order to open up the Crossfire Hurricane case, because that's what has all of these people's names in it. And without it, they wouldn't have been able to open the investigation. Whether they got the tip in May or not, I think they did. But whether they did or not, that tip in and of itself would have never been enough to open up investigations into Manafort and, uh, and for that matter, Carter Page. It was only really about Papadopoulos. So, about a week or two later, on August 10th, the FBI opens formal counterintelligence investigations into specifically Carter Page, George Papadopoulos, and Paul Manafort, all of which are associated with the Trump campaign. Now, you may be asking yourself, what does this have to do with Michael Flynn? Well, it doesn't have a lot to do with Michael Flynn at the moment, which is kind of the point. They've opened the investigation. They have the dossier. They have the tip from Downer. They've opened counterintelligence investigations into three people in the Trump campaign. Flynn is not one of them. Let's get into the Steele memo written on, curiously enough, August 10th, 2016. So August 10th, 2016, they opened an investigation, a formal counterintelligence investigations, I should say, into Carter Page, Paul Manafort, and George Papadopoulos. On that same day, the Steele dossier has a memo dated. Now, the dossier, they got it in July, but memos continue to come in. I have a theory on that as well. But the memos continue to come in from Steele as he's getting more information, supposedly. On the same day that they opened those counter-investigations into Page, Manafort, and Papa D, the Steele dossier memo dated August 10, 2016, claims that Flynn has potential ties to Russians, had a recent trip to Moscow in December of 2015, and notably, Flynn's name on this particular memo is written differently than the other names in the memo. All of the other names in the memo are written in all caps. Michael Flynn's is not. Was Michael Flynn's name added to this document after the fact? And somebody didn't think to, you know, make sure that all of the capitalizations align with one another? It's a theory. It's one Bongino's been kicking around for a while. And for that, I'm just putting it out there. Now, also worth note, the FBI claims that they didn't have the dossier until September. But we know from sworn testimony from Agent Gata that the FBI had it well beforehand. And as a matter of fact, we know that they had it on at the very latest August 10th because that's when this memo from Christopher Steele shows up dated, curiously enough, August 10th. Now, it's likely that they had it in July and memos kept coming in. Like I said, conveniently, this memo is actually dated the same day that they're opening up cases on three other members of the campaign and looking for a reason to investigate Flynn in particular because they know he's the former director of, uh, of, internal, uh, of, of intelligence affairs and he's the incoming national security advisor. The guy's got top secret clearance. He knows all the tricks. He knows all the game moves. They simply cannot let him into the walls otherwise. He's going to figure out what they've been up to. Now, quick pause here. Isn't that funny already? That they, they opened the initial investigation on July 31st, 2016. The FBI, FBI wants to open an investigation into the Trump team. And magically, a dossier pops up with all of this information about these three guys in the Trump campaign. Then, the guy who wrote the dossier shows up two weeks later and hands them another memo that just so happens to have claims about Flynn, whom Obama doesn't like anyway, and is the real threat within the Trump incoming Trump administration or the potential incoming Trump administration, because at this point, Trump hadn't been elected yet. He was the former director 
of, uh, of like I said, intelligence affairs. The steel then hands them a memo, and they look at it, and Flynn's name is capitalized different than all the others on the page, but they say, fuck it, this'll do. Then they use that document to open a case against Michael Flynn. It's almost like they're getting evidence on demand. It's like a guy in college who would write a term paper for you for 50 bucks, except instead of writing a term paper, he fabricates evidence against a three-star general because he's too smart and too qualified not to nail you for all of your corruption. All right, back on track here. A text sent at a much later date and time from Strzok to Page seems to reveal that Strzok had figured out someone else in the FBI had the dossier in early August. Not in September, which is still the official story that Comey and McCabe and a dozen of others have sworn to. They had it in early August. Now, there are some semantics being played here. John Brennan seems to be guilty of this as well, where the FBI, in, in to give them as much credit for their shadiness as humanly possible, are differentiating between the Steele dossier and particular Steele memos. So maybe they saw a few of the memos, but they didn't see the full dossier. So when they're asked, did you see the dossier, they say, no, I didn't see the dossier, because in their head, even though they know the memos that they saw comprised the dossier, they only saw a few of the memos. So they didn't see the whole dossier. So when they're asked, did you see the dossier, they could say no, even under oath, because they haven't physically seen the dossier. They've only seen some of the information that was within it. They may have seen the entirety of the information was within it, but they can at least say in their head, I didn't see the dossier. I didn't get one of those weird brown folders with like the little elastic-y thing around it. So I didn't see the dossier. So that's a little bit of wordplay that they're possibly playing here, which may very well skirt them around any sort of perjury charges. Also, let's take a step back and realize that Steele fabricated virtually the entirety of the dossier from thin air. Now, what are the odds that the FBI who's actively looking for reasons to look into various members of the Trump campaign, just so happened to get a memo from Steele, dated the same week that they're opening up other investigations into Trump campaign members, and it just so happens to implicate another Trump campaign member who also happens to be rather unpopular with Barack Obama and his administration and the rest of the intelligence community because Michael Flynn was very, very vocal about the politicization of the uh, of the, the intelligence community, and that was part of the reason he was ousted in 2014 as the head of the DIA. It's almost like Steele is just reporting exactly what they want to hear and doing it at their beck and call. And one last aside, keep in mind that Steele was contracted by Fusion GPS by Glenn Simpson. Fusion GPS also happened to employ Nellie Orr, who was working on the case, her job was to, quote, do, uh, was to do, quote, research and analysis of Mr. Trump, end quote. Nellie Orr just so happens to be married to Bruce Orr, who is the associate deputy attorney general for the Justice Department. So he's heavily involved in all this as well. I think I may have said he's in the FBI. He was in the DOJ. He was later demoted when it was found out that Orr was meeting with Steele and Simpson even after Steele had been deemed to no longer be a credible source for the FBI due to some inappropriate contacts he had with the press. Michael Isikoff! Um, <laughs> sorry, that one just was stuck in there. Um, so he had been having some inappropriate contacts with the press, who were, by the way, totally complicit in all of this chicanery. Again, looking at you, Isikoff, and looking at you, David Ignatius, just to name a few. 
Then we go into August 11th, 2016. Stefan Halper, an FBI spy, an asset, shows up and says that he knows Manafort. Oh, and by the way, I also happen to know Flynn and Page, too. Case Agent 1 would later describe this moment in time by saying that he couldn't believe their luck that Source 2 knew three of the four subjects of the investigation. Case Agent 1, by the way, happens to be a guy named Stephen Soma, and one of his many jobs at the FBI was to be a handler for an FBI asset named... Stefan Halper. Stefan Halper is Source 2 in the Mueller report. He's a spy that's been you know, an asset of the FBI for a long time. Stephen Soma, case agent one on this particular case anyway, is the guy who handles Stephen Halper, who just shows up, struts in, and is like, hey guys, oh, you guys got an investigation going on? Oh, I know three or four of those guys. Cool, ask me all the questions you want to ask me. By the way, Halper happens to be the same guy who fabricated an entire story about Flynn having an affair with a Russian woman named Svetlana Lakova in 2014, which was used to accuse him of being a Russian asset back then, which was also part of what played out in him ultimately getting booted out of his position as the head of the DIA. And they used him, they used this to, to, to assume that he was having an affair with this woman, when it turns out Stefan Halper was the one who set up the whole dinner and put him next to her to begin with. So he was basically fabricating information for the purposes of having something to run back to the FBI and give them. And conveniently enough, it just so happened to be the same information that they were hoping would surface. They were looking for a reason to get rid of Flynn. Sure enough, Halper shows up and says, well, I don't know, man. I think he might be having an affair with this Russian chick. I saw them sitting next to one another at a dinner in London. More on Halper coming later. On August 15th, 2016, Page and Strzok send each other the insurance policy text, where Strzok says to Page, I'd like to believe the scenario you laid out in Andy's office about him not having a chance to win, meaning Trump, but I think we should have an insurance policy, like something that, you know, like something you put in place so that in case you die before you're 40. Now, even in this moment, even in August of 2016, as we're getting closer and closer to the election within three months of the election, Struck is starting to come to the realization that maybe Trump's got a chance here and that, yeah, it's unlikely, but we should definitely have something in place just in case he does win because, God forbid, he gets in there. General Flynn's part of his administration. We can't allow that. He's going to figure us all out. So on August 16th, 2016, the FBI, this is the next day, by the way, after the insurance policy text, the FBI opens a case on Flynn. But why? Well, thankfully, we've got some Twitter journalists out there who are far better than the mainstream journalists. This is from at John W. Huber on Twitter, otherwise known as Undercover Huber. He sends out a tweet. Here's the two-page, quote, justification for opening a full counterintelligence case against a 30-year combat veteran, general, and former director of an intelligence agency. Here are the reasons. Number one, he's a foreign policy advisor to Trump. Number two, he has unspecified, quote, ties to, quote, various, quote, state-affiliated entities of Russia. And number three, he traveled to Russia. No, seriously, that's exactly what they wrote in their charging document. I'm going to read from it now. 
specifically CR, his, uh, his, his code name in the FBI was Crossfire Razor. Everything was Crossfire. They got caught up in the Crossfire. Crossfire! All right, sorry. I had to get one of those out. Specifically, Crossfire Razor has been cited as an advisor to the Trump campaign on foreign policy issues February 2016. He is ties to various state-affiliated entities of the Russian Federation, as reported by Open Source Information, and he traveled to Russia in December 2015, as reported by Open Source Information. Additionally, CR has an active top-secret security clearance. These are the reasons that they opened up a counterintelligence investigation against a 30-year combat veteran. He was an advisor to Trump, not illegal. He is affiliated with, what is it? What did they say? He, he has ties to various state-affiliated entities of the Russian Federation, as reported by open source information. So they Googled it. Gee, I wonder what sources they pulled up. Were they Washington Post and New York Times and CNN? And as reported by open, inf- open source information, he traveled to Russia in December of 2015. So they Googled this stuff. This is what they got all this information from. They don't, they don't cite anything in the dossier. No, nope, nothing to do with the dossier, conveniently enough. Even though Flynn is mentioned in the dossier and they don't open the investigation into Flynn until they get that memo about Flynn from August 10th, 2016. No mention of that. They quote open source information. They Googled. They typed the word Michael Flynn into Google. They typed Flynn Russia into Google, and they found out, oh, he spoke at this dinner for RTTV. Now, I already addressed that at the top of the show. He was there for very specific, potentially even counter, uh, you know, national security reasons, even though he wasn't really involved in the government. It could be said that that very speech is more of a Logan Act violation than anything that he did in his call with the Russian ambassador that got him in all this trouble to begin with. But no one has ever actually been prosecuted for the Logan Act successfully because it's a joke. So, um, you know, if, if, we're, if we're splitting hair, hairs on things like that, that speech would probably be more in line with a Logan Act violation than anything the incoming national security advisor might have said to a foreign ambassador on his way into the White House. Nevertheless, we move on. So they opened up this case on Flynn based on a dossier memo, based on a bunch of nonsense that they Googled, and based on very, very thinly veiled reasons as to why somebody might want to look into, again, a three-star general, a former head of an intelligence agency, the incoming national security direct, uh, national security advisor, and a guy who has spent more than a quarter of a century defending this country and, you know, via, via the military and via the intelligence community. It's sheer and utter nonsense that something so thin would open up an entire counterintelligence investigation. If it sounds crazy, that's because it is. And moving on, in this indictment, essentially, they are literally saying in plain English that they're investigating Flynn because he's advising Trump, because he knows some people in Russia, according to Google, no really, and that he traveled to Russia two years ago, again, also according to Google. No, really. Oh, and he's also got a top secret security clearance, essentially admitting right there in their justification for going after Flynn that they don't like that he's advising Trump and has a top secret security clearance. And oh, by the way, he may know some Russians. This is a guy who's, you know, been in the military, been in the intelligence community. I'm sure he knows a few Russians. You bump into a few of those along the way. So he's advising Trump, not illegal. Having top secret security clearance, not illegal, but it really grinds their gears, doesn't it? (laughs) 
and apparently, you know, he knows some Russians. Russians. He was he was at an RT anniversary dinner, being at some sort of banquet where Vladimir Putin was even present. Is apparently enough to open up a counterintelligence investigation, even though this was all found via open source information. So it wasn't exactly like Flynn was hiding any of this. If he were, you'd think he'd be a little bit better about it and not like take a picture on his Instagram. Be like, hey, I'm here in Russia, ready to talk to Vlad. Like, you know, the guy clearly wasn't hiding any of this. He's well aware, as we'll later find out, that the Americans are always monitoring Russian activity. And so you would think that he would be smart enough not to get himself involved in a coup with a bunch of people he knows are always being monitored by the very same people who are now going after him and trying to keep him out of power because they know he'll figure out what they've been doing, which is not good. None of it's good. The politicization of the intelligence community unto itself is bad, but the incessant spying by the Obama administration, not only on Trump administration, Trump campaign uh, members, but also on members of the media. Uh, Obama really, really liked his spying, and it came back around where he, he got too comfortable with it after eight years of doing it. He thought he could get away with it, and he may very well have, but not if we have anything to say about it. So Flynn, obviously, Russian asset, right? He's been engaged with Russians a handful of times in the last decade. He's obviously a Russian plant who suddenly turned on America after dedicating about 30 years of his life to trying to serve America. Obviously, they got him. They should just start calling him Boris. Like, I don't even understand. Moving on to October 17th, 2016, the Trump team, Flynn, Trump, and Christie, among others, are given an intelligence briefing by the FBI and members of the intelligence community, from which Trump and Flynn said that they would they could tell that the intelligence community was not happy with Barack Obama. Here's what they had to say. Trump said, What I did learn is that our leadership, Barack Obama, did not follow what our experts said to do, and I was very, very surprised. I could tell you, I'm pretty good with body language. I could tell you, they were not happy. End of quote. Flynn was then later asked whether or not he saw what Trump claims to have seen in that briefing, and he said, I sure did, in a very specific way. Though, he went on to say that his conclusion was based not on body language, but on intelligence officials drawing distinctions between the content of their brief and White House policy. So, in, in the intelligence community, they're giving the incoming presidential candidate, we don't know that he's going to be elected yet, but we're getting within a few weeks of the election, so they brief the two candidates, just in case. Flynn notices that the intelligence community is distinguishing between what they're saying as far as what the actual contents of the brief are and what White House policy is. So they're talking about certain intelligence matters, and they're saying, well... Here's the official story, but here's what the White House policy is, which in and of itself means that there's something shady going on in regards to the White House policy because it shouldn't deviate from what is already in place intelligence community protocols. No, no. The White House has its own policy because the guy who's running the White House has no respect for the protocols and policies that were in place to begin with. And yes, I'm talking about Obama. And speaking of spying, on October 21st, 2016, the FISA warrant is approved for uh, to spy on Carter Page. Just worth a note. About 10 days later, on October 31st, 2016, Brad Lichtbaugh and Stephen Lee Myers write the following article in the New York Times. Headline, investigating Donald Trump, FBI sees no clear link to Russia. Now, why is this important? 
Well, because the media is gaslighting for the FBI, as we're going to find out, not only through this story, but through other stories as we move throughout this case here. Maybe winningly, maybe not. The media could just be dumb and want to go with the story because they think it'll sell papers, or they hate Donald Trump so much they're willing to lie, or at the very least not question the FBI when they're providing them with rather convenient information. Now, the FBI hasn't found anything on page in the 10 days since the FISA warrant was issued. They've had 10 days. They've looked through all his emails, his communications. They can even go back retroactively and look at his emails and his cell phone calls. They found nothing. So they needed to find a new strategy. What do they do? Well, the FBI tells someone at the New York Times, hey, go ahead and write a story about how we're looking into the Russia thing and we haven't found anything. There's no clear link. We're, we're just, you know, we're, we're not finding anything. And why would they do that? Well, they get that information out there into the paper of record in hopes that Carter Page will see it and then call his supposed Russian contacts that he wasn't colluding with to tell them that the coast is clear and that the collusion plot is still a go. They, they approve the Carter Page FISA on the 21st. Nothing happens for 10 days until we get this, this article that comes out in the New York Times which is clearly meant, as we'll see later in the case of the Washington Post with General Flynn, the article is put out there, it is literal fake news, it is actual propaganda, it is straight-up gaslighting from the New York Times on behalf of the FBI to put Carter Page in, a, in, a, in an eased state so that maybe he'll reach out to the Russians that they think that he's working with, and then they can nail him for talking to the Russians that they thought he was working with for the collusion plot. That doesn't exist. A couple weeks later, President-elect Donald Trump offers Flynn the job of National Security Advisor. This is on November 17, 2016. On November 18, 2016, Page, Strzok, and McCabe are all texting each other about Brennan having dinner with Clapper that night just for your situational awareness. So this isn't a dinner with a couple of steaks and a couple of cigars and a couple of war stories between, you know, two guys who have definitely seen some shit in their day who also happen to just look like old albino California raisins. But this is a business dinner. It's for your situational awareness. If these guys were just having a casual dinner that night, there'd be no need for Paige Struck or McCabe to consider it at all for their situational awareness. But clearly, this was a working dinner. This was a business dinner. And I'm sure the selection of Flynn for the National Security Advisor was the topic in that conversation, if not the sole purpose of the dinner to begin with. Moving on, about a month and a half later, on December 29, 2016, that's the date of the call between Michael Flynn an Ambassador Act that is really the center of all of this controversy. The, the call that he supposedly lied about to the FBI, that takes place on December 29th. And there's a lot of controversy as to exactly how the federal government determined that it was Michael Flynn on the call. Now, obviously, there's been all this talk about unmaskings, which is something that can be done. I mean, essentially, to break it down for you, there's three ways in which the federal government can spy on an American citizen. One, if there's a criminal warrant out on that particular individual. Number two is if there's a FISA warrant out on that particular individual. And the third is if in the events of surveilling foreigners, we come across an American citizen, that American citizen's name can be unmasked. If it's determined that it's important, 
for national security purposes to know who that person is and why they were saying whatever it was they were saying with whatever foreigner that they happen to be spying on. Now, worth note is that there were 49 requests to unmask General Flynn's name from a variety of people in the government. Uh, Ambassadors, even Joe Biden was one of them. Sally Yates was one of them. Samantha Powers was one of them. Samantha Powers requested Flynn's name be unmasked seven different times and swore under oath that she never recalled having done so. Seven different times and claimed she didn't remember doing any of them. Seems a little odd, but worth note is that between December 29th and January 4th of 2017, there were no requests. Now, that date is going to become important in a minute here when I get to January 4th, but just keep in mind, the call took place on the 29th, and no masking, unmasking requests took place for the next week leading up to January 4th. So somebody was able to access that information about that call and know that it was General Flynn without ever having actually unmasked General Flynn's name, which is weird. How is that possible? Well, it turns out that they never unmasked Flynn's name on that particular call because it was never masked to begin with, which is a gross violation of his his rights as an American citizen to not be spied upon by his government. Now, there may be a loophole somewhere in there that allows the government to do that, and we'll get to that in a second. But don't believe me as far as whether or not he was unmasked or not unmasked. Here's Andy McCabe, Andrew McCabe, the director, deputy director of the FBI on the matter. And this comes from an Epoch Times article, and the article reads, and I quote, a congressional staffer discussed this matter during a December 19, 2017 interview with then FBI director Andrew McCabe. Now, this is a year after the fact. This is December 2017. The staffer quoted from the prior Comey testimony, we did not disseminate this taken any finished intelligence and added that Comey was referring to these specific tech cuts, end quote. So that's the transcripts of the, do- of, of the conversation that Flynn had with Kislyak. The staffer then goes on to extrapolate, and he says to McCabe, so no transcript or summary of the conversation with Kislyak was ever masked, and therefore there were no unmasking requests that could have ever been made for these non-existent reports while describing the issue. And McCabe says, I think your description is accurate. So it turns out that Flynn was never masked in that phone call, which would explain how people knew it was Flynn, even though there were no unmasking request between December 29th, the date of the phone call, and January 4th, the date that I'm about to explain to you, the FBI was going to close the case against Flynn having no derogatory information. But how? How is the name not masked to begin with? How is it possible that they completely bypass the absolute basic right to not be spied upon by our own government for this American citizen, patriot, and hero? There were no criminal warrants. There was no unmasking request, as I just explained, and there was no FISA warrant mentioned at any point during the IG report. But there is an exception to the FISA rule, and I quote, exception to court order requirement. The president may authorize electronic surveillance to acquire foreign intelligence information for periods of up to one year without an FISC court order. That's the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, 
where the attorney general certifies that there is, and I quote, no substantial likelihood that the surveillance will acquire the contents of any communication to which a U.S. person is a party, end quote, provided the surveillance is directed solely at the communications among or between foreign powers or, and I quote, the acquisition of technical intelligence from property or premises under the open and exclusive control of foreign power, end quote. That's uh, 50 U.S. Criminal Code 1802. So they weren't, quote, surveilling Flynn. They were surveilling Kislyak, who they knew would call Flynn. But how how did they know he was going to call Michael Flynn? Well, just days before the call, actually the day of that particular call on the 2019th, Obama expels a bunch of Russian diplomats for election-related hacking. The 35 Russian diplomats being expelled are, quote, intelligence operatives, Obama said. The State Department has declared them, quote, persona non grata, end quote, and they will be given 72 hours to leave the country. This is uh, from an article from The Guardian, went outside the states here for that one. But why then? Why did he kick these Russians out on December 29th, why then? And, and, and why would they call General Flynn? Well, it just so happens to turn out that on December 29th, 2016, Flynn wasn't in the United States. He was in the Dominican Republic. But why wouldn't the Russians, or for that matter, even somebody in the U.S. government, call him on a government phone, a secure line, or something along those lines? Obviously, the government would know it was Flynn if they had called on a particular phone that was issued by the government. They would be able to determine that information without an unmasking. Well, it turns out, as Flynn had mentioned in testimony, or in an interview with McCabe, that his BlackBerry, his government-issued BlackBerry, was conveniently not working during the time that he was in the Dominican Republic. So Obama and Lynch, you know, Obama's hypothetically here, Obama says, you know what, let's spy on this guy. We don't need a FISA warrant. I'm the president. I can do whatever I say. Whatever I say goes, because I'm Barack Obama. You, Loretta, go ahead and uh, and approve this, because I said so. And, you know, the dictator that he was and all. And uh, so they think to themselves, well, we've got this exception here where the president can spy on people without a FISA warrant, as long as the AG signs on and says that there's no substantial likelihood that an American is going to get caught up in any of this. Well, the substantial likelihood that a Russian calling the Dominican Republic would somehow tangle an American in all this is not very high. So they could have even said, okay, we're going to listen to Kislyak. We're not going to listen to any of his calls here to the States or to anyone we know is a U.S. citizen. But if Kislyak calls a random hotel room in the Dominican Republic... It's a different story entirely. They don't know who's on the other end of that phone. And why are, the, why are the Russians calling the Dominican Republic? They probably could have used that as an excuse for it to be suspicious and for them to listen in on the call. And Obama specifically can have that name not unmasked, but never masked in the intelligence that's brought to him in accordance with that exception to the FISA warrant. So Flynn Still a U.S. citizen. He's still got rights, whether he's in the Dominican or not. But they may have been able to at least spin 
that while he was in the Dominican and he was talking to Kislyak, he wasn't on a government-issued phone. We didn't really know it was him, but we knew it was him because he was never masked. So Obama gets this information, and a few days later, that becomes very, very importantly. But realistically, they knew that Kislyak was obviously going to call Flynn. Why? Well, because Flynn was the incoming national security advisor, and his administration, the Trump administration, was about to be taking over the government in less than a month's time. So why would the Russians deal with the current administration that just slapped all these sanctions on their diplomats and kicked them out of the country and closed down embassies when the Obama administration was going to be over in less than a month? Why bother reasoning with them when a new administration is about to come in? By the way, the national security advisor, the incoming national security advisor, is briefed on a lot of international affairs and, for that matter, is is able to have conversations like this one with Kislyak, and it's completely above board. He has clearance. He's about to become a member of the cabinet. He's going to be the national security advisor, so obviously he's read in on these things, and it's not at all sketchy or un characteristic for the incoming national security advisor to get involved in situations like this. The Obama administration knew that, so they kicked out those diplomats, forcing the Russians to do something, and that something was contact Flynn, who just so happened to be out of the country at the time so that they could spy on him. Now, let's be clear. They knew Flynn wasn't a Russian asset. The FBI had possession of the transcript of this call in late December, early January, according to Jim Comey's sworn testimony. They had determined that there was nothing wrong with the call because there wasn't. It was perfectly legal. It was. They were about to close the case on him even after this call took place. They had absolutely nothing on General Flynn. So they had to make up something, right? Because they can't let General Flynn be part of this administration because he will figure out that their entire plot to fabricate Russian collusion was a hoax, and he will know exactly who was to blame. He will have all. He will know where all the bodies are buried because he will have access to all of the same information that they were passing back and forth to one another. They were targeting the United States, the president of the United States, or the incoming president of the United States, later the president of the United States, on the words of the Democratic Party, who paid a British spy who supposedly asked some Russian intelligence officers. We're still not sure if he actually asked them, but either way, he either was lied to by them or made up whatever it was that he claims that they said to him. Steele's statements were just completely false, whole cloth. Now, to elaborate on that, Last bit there, either the Russians never talked to Steele. Steele just put the names of people he knew were Russian intelligence people in the dossier, knowing they would carry weight, much like the the very same situation is with the dossier itself, is that Steele's name provided weight to it because he was considered a, a valuable, a reliable source by the FBI. Steele may not have written a lot of that dossier. There's a lot of information in that dossier that comes from Halper. There's a lot of information in that dossier that comes from Glenn Simpson of Fusion GPS, the guy paying Steele to go out and get the information. So they're using Steele's name as weight to make this information seem more legitimate than it actually is. It's possible to suggest that Flynn, or rather, I'm sorry, Steele, did I say Flynn? Steele is now using the Russian intelligence officer's names to provide weight to the substance of whatever it is that he's providing here in this fake dossier. So they either knew what he was doing and they saw this as an opportunity to sow some chaos by providing him with basically exactly what he wanted to hear, or he never actually interviewed them and just completely made up words from these supposed Russian intel officers. 
either way, the dossier is bullshit and is still not to this day never been verified. None of it, including the prime the, the primary subsource immediately was like, no, I never said that. So either they're lying to the FBI or they lied to Steele, or maybe they're lying to both, or Steele lied to the FBI, never actually talked to the Russians. Either way, the FBI did nothing to try to verify all these these accusations that were in this dossier. Instead, they used news articles that were quoting the same information to corroborate it for the purposes of getting a FISA warrant. They could have just, you know, interviewed the subsources and had proof that, yes, Steele asked this guy this, this guy said this, we asked that guy the same question, he said the same thing. None of that actually happened because none of it was actually true. That brings me to January 4th, 2017, where the FBI drafts a letter that says they couldn't find any derogatory information on Michael Flynn and they are about to close the investigation. This is from the actual FBI electronic communication titled Closing Communication. From the Washington Field Office, approved by redacted, drafted by redacted, case ID number redacted, crossfire razor, Foreign Agents Registration Act, Russia Sensitive Information Matter, or Sensitive Investigative Matter. But the actual the actual electronic communication pretty much gives away the game here. It closes very strong, and it reads, I quote, Following the compilation of the above information, the Crossfire Hurricane team determined that Crossfire Razor, Flynn, was no longer a viable candidate as part of the larger Crossfire Hurricane umbrella case. A review of logical, redacted databases did not yield any information on which to predicate further investigative efforts. While a confidential human source provided some information on CRs, that's Flynn again, Crossfire Razors, interaction with Redacted, I believe that's Turkey, the absence of derogatory information on Redacted limited the investigative value of the information. The writer notes that since Crossfire Razor was not specifically named as an agent of a foreign power by the original Crossfire Hurricane predicated in reporting, the absence of any derogatory information or lead information from these logical sources reduce the number of investigative avenues and techniques to pursue. Per the direction of FBI management, Crossfire Razor was not interviewed as part of the case-closing procedure. Redacted, the FBI is closing this investigation if new information is identified or reported to the FBI regarding the activities of Crossfire Razor. The FBI will consider re- reopening the investigation if warranted. And quote. So that's that day. That's January 4th. They wrote a document. It's titled and labeled and dated January 4th. The FBI is closing the investigation onto Flynn after finding no derogatory information that he was, in fact, a foreign agent. Just as those documents are being submitted, Peter Strzok, lover boy, asks Redacted, who happens to be the case agent on the Crossfire Razor portion of the case, where we're still not sure exactly who that is, but Shruck asks them if they could keep the Flynn case open. If you haven't processed the paperwork yet, don't. We've got one last thing that we might want to try here. He then messages Lisa Page and says it was, quote, serendipitously good, end quote, that the case wasn't officially closed and, quote, Our utter incompetence actually helps us 20% of the time, I'm guessing, smiley face emoticon, end quote. Now, let me just go ahead and say, let the record reflect, Peter. 
that sending text messages like this must be part of the 80% of the time where your utter incompetence does not help you because, my God, my God, what a fucking idiot. Like, what an idiot. To uh, openly declare your utter incompetence and that it's helping you and that it's serendipitously good that this case was closed. Why is it serendipitously good that this case wasn't closed? If you had new information on Flynn, you could have reopened the case. It said so right in the document that I read there. If you had new information about Crossfire Razor that was pertinent to the case, you could have reopened it at any time. You also could have just opened a brand new investigation at any time if you actually found information worth investigating on General Flynn. So why is it serendipitously good that this case is still open? Well, like I just kind of teased, it's pretty much because they knew that what they were about to keep the investigation open for was not enough to reopen the investigation or, for that matter, enough to open a new investigation because what they're going on at this point in their desperation is so incredibly thin that they knew they would never, ever be able to justify it if they had to. Now, what they're about to use, as I'm about to get to in January 5th here, they're going to try to use the Logan Act which has only ever been prosecuted twice since its inception in 1799, and precisely a grand total of zero convictions have come as a result of the Logan Act. It's an extraordinarily thin case that was stretched even thinner by the fact that the man that they're targeting for such a violation is the incoming National Security Advisor, somebody who is about to be part of the administration, who is read in on intelligence briefings, and for that matter, let, you know, made known what is going on in the international scene so that he could be abreast of what's going on when he shows up on day one. This is the guy's a former director of intelligence affairs. The guy is no slouch. He knows what he can and cannot do. He knows, as we'll get to a little bit later, that the FBI is likely listening to all of his conversations with the Russians. But nevertheless, they decided to push forward with this Logan Act thing as their excuse to, quote, keep the case open to listen in on his phone call, and then to ultimately question him. And that brings us to the January 5th meeting. The big meeting. Obama, Biden, Comey, Brennan, Clapper, Yates, and Rice. All the big players are there. There was also an unnamed person in that meeting, according to Fox News, and I wonder if that was Special Agent Super Ghost Joseph Pianca, uh, who was the other person in... Uh, that will eventually be in on the interview with Flynn, with Strzok. There was two people interviewed Flynn. It was Strzok and Pianca. Pianca is a ghost. No one's seen him to this day. There's not even like a picture of him anywhere on the internet. Um, but he was the one who helped interview Flynn. Fox News and their article about this meeting said that there was one person that was unnamed, and they, they basically were told not to print the name for whatever reason. They decided to oblige, and I think, I think, it might have been Joe Pianca, but we know Obama, Biden, Comey, Brennan, Clapper, Yates, and Susan Rice all in this meeting. Sally Yates, in her testimony that was recently released in unredacted, well, largely unredacted form, she states about this meeting that her and Comey were asked to stay after class. After the meeting broke, Obama said, yep, Sally, you, and uh, Jim, could you guys stay over here, please? Yep, all right, thank you. Barack Obama tells them that he knows about the call with Kislyak, which is weird because, as I mentioned, there were no unmasking requests between the date of the call and the date of this meeting. None whatsoever. So how does he know? 
Could it be that he unmasked Flynn through that weird exception that's, that Loretta Lynch would have had to have signed off on, certifying that there was no substantial likelihood that an American would get caught up in this trap, even though that was pretty much the expressed purpose of him waiving that particular right for Michael Flynn to be listened in on by the government? The whole precipice of listening to Kislyak was to catch Flynn in a lie. So, to suggest that Loretta Lynch certified that there was no substantial likelihood that an American would get tied up in this is nonsense. It is nothing other than just, you know, Loretta Lynch doing what her boss told her to do, even though it's illegal. Maybe somebody even mentioned Obama, and he probably was like, they'll never get me on that anyway, don't even worry about it. Because, let's face it, the media is going to never, ever, even if this came out tomorrow, Joe Biden came out and said tomorrow, Obama knew, Obama did this, Obama did that. People would still cover for Barack Obama. He knows he's got the complete cover of the media. He's got the complete cover of the blue check marks on Twitter, all the Hollywood elites, all the professors in academia. He knows that under no circumstances, especially for something as, you know, as, as obscure and seemingly petty as this, are they ever going to try to nail a former president to the wall on this sort of stuff? So he's like, go ahead, just go ahead and sign it, and we're going to go ahead, we're going to spy on Michael Flynn. And so he does, or rather he did, because he already knew about the Kislyak call, despite the fact there was no unmasking attempts or requests. He specifically says to Yates and Comey, he doesn't want to know any more about the situation. Sort of like, I want plausible deniability here, folks. I don't want to know any more than I absolutely need to know, because if somebody ever asked me what I know, I want to be able to say I don't know. It's plausible deniability. Happens all the time. But he wanted to know if the White House should be treating Flynn any different given the information that came in as a result of that call. Sally Yates is completely baffled by this. She has no idea how Barack Obama knows. She doesn't even really know what he's talking about until she starts to put it together through context clues. And she says on the record that Comey brought up the Logan Act, but she didn't recall if he mentioned an open investigation. And that may very well be because the open investigation was only barely open, and maybe Comey wasn't entirely sure if the case was still open, didn't want to promise anything to Barack Obama. But Yates did testify to all of what I just said under oath. That was declassified on May 6, 2020, when all of the other 57 transcripts or the other 40, 56 transcripts were released along with hers. So Obama knew, and he conspired with Comey to drum up a ridiculous Logan Act scheme to get him into their little perjury trap. So here's the plan, right? We've got the call with Kislyak. We know there's nothing wrong with the call, because if there was something wrong with the call, they wouldn't be closing the case a week later. They keep the case open so that they can eventually turn back around and question Flynn, something they didn't do the first time around because they had no derogatory information and there was no need for them to question Michael Flynn. They pull this call up from the dead, because it is dead. They had already seen it. The FBI had read through it already, determined there was nothing wrong with it. And now we're going to resurrect that call. We're going to resurrect the case. And we're going to use that as an excuse to question Flynn using the Logan Act as a cover, even though we're not even going to really do that because when we talk to Flynn, we're going to do everything in our power to suggest to him that there's nothing investigatory going on here. We're just having a friendly chat between government officials. No need for a lawyer. No need for White House counsel. No need to be read any sort of rights or warnings in regards to any false statements he might be making to the FBI. None whatsoever. It was just a couple dudes sitting back, throwing back some brews, talking about some, you know, intelligence agency shit as you 
ought to do, I guess, when you're in the intelligence agency. So Sally Yates baffled by the fact that Obama knew Comey bringing up the Logan Act, and then they use that case that was already open. They can now keep it open. They're going to use this Logan Act nonsense as a means to try to interrogate Michael Flynn, even though they're going to be as shady about it as humanly possible, including not even showing him the transcript. Then, on that same day, on January 5th, weirdly enough, Christopher Steele deletes his emails regarding his primary source of the dossier material? What? Well, how do we know? Thankfully, there's some investigative reporting going on over at the Daily Caller uh, in this article entitled, Exclusive Dossier Author Testifies testified his emails were, quote, wiped, end quote. He no longer has documents related to primary source. Now, in this article written in April of 2020, they say that in March of 2020, Steele was in a British court and testified as per the following. Steele said that a hush mail account he used in late Jan- December 2016 was, quote, wiped clean. He also said that that communications with Fusion GPS on his company's computer network were scrubbed on January 5th, 2017. BuzzFeed News published Steele's dossier five days later. So conveniently, he's got a bunch of information that's just being wiped clean from his own Hushmail account involving particularly primary subsources to the dossier. But then specifically on January 5th, on the same day that this sketchy-ass meeting is going on in the Oval Office about what we're going to do about Michael Flynn, conveniently, all of his work and his communications with Fusion GPS that were on his company's computer were scrubbed that same day. And five days later, the dossier is leaked to BuzzFeed, and BuzzFeed actually held onto it for a couple of days and released it after word had come out about James Comey meeting with Donald Trump in Trump Tower on January 6th. Because once once they had the dossier, it wasn't enough to print it because even the journalists, even these hack leftist journalists know they can't just go publishing a dossier without verifying any of it. But if it becomes the subject of an intelligence briefing between James Comey, other members of the intelligence community, and Donald Trump, the incoming president, then you can report on it because somebody was talking about it, and now it's important enough to at least talk about. We can't say that it's verified, but it becomes newsworthy because that meeting took place and Trump was briefed on the contents of the dossier. They just so happened to have a copy of the dossier, and they distributed it to the masses. But why? Well, David Kramer, Republican, who got sucked up into the Russian hype and helped pass the dossier to McCain, who helped bring it to the FBI, His recently released testimony related to the Russia probe said this, Mr. Kramer. He says, there was one thing he mentioned to me that is not included in here, and that is he believed, this is related to the Steele dossier, that Michael Flynn had an extramarital affair with a Russian woman in the UK, Michael Flynn that is. How does he know that? How does he know that information? Not Kramer. Kramer was told that information by Steele. How does Steele know that information? Well, as I mentioned before, Halper was the one who set up that dinner where Flynn was reported to be sitting next to Svetlana Lakova, and this is some sort of indication of some sort of traitorous affair, and Halper then used that a couple of years later to try to use it against Flynn as an FBI source. So is is Steele getting his information from Halper? Because Halper is source number two on the do- on the in the Mueller report, 
Steel is source 1, Halper is source 2. But what if source 1 and source 2 are one and the same? That's a lot less actual evidence, which is to say it's evidence, it's essentially no evidence, because you have you have evidence A being corroborated by evidence A, calling it evidence B. It's not how that works. It's the same information, and since it's the same information, that means that it's not corroborating one another because it's the same information. It's the same thing with the FISA court and the Michael Isikoff article that I mentioned before. This is information laundering. You pass the information through enough sources to where nobody knows where it's coming from, and then once two sources meet one another that say, oh, yeah, we got the same information here, now they're now they're considering that corroborating evidence, which is not the case. But luckily, there was a guy who was working in the Pentagon in the Office of Net Assessment. His name was Adam Lovinger. He happens to know Flynn and actually was requesting a position in the National Security Council, I guess, as a result of Flynn taking the position there. He wanted to work under Flynn. He requested that. And he also found that there was something particularly sketchy going on around Stefan Halper. Stefan Halper was being paid by the Pentagon's Office of Net Assessment, and in the process of being paid by that office, he was providing information to the FBI about the situation. He was providing information to steal, it sounds like, so the U.S. government was actually paying this guy to sabotage the sitting or soon-to-be sitting president of the United States. Adam Lovinger, for blowing the whistle, was stripped of his security clearance and placed under investigation. Yep, that's how we treat whistleblowers. I thought whistleblowers were sacred. Uh, Adam, what's his name? Alexander Vindman and Eric Charmella, who were still not even allowed to say his name. Dr. Rick Bright, Marie Yovanovitch. All these people were whistleblowers. They they were the ones that were worthy of, of all of the credit and, and heroes for coming forward. Adam Lovinger? Nah, we're going to strip him of his security clearance. Or we're going to place him under investigation. Yeah, a little hypocrisy there, huh? Anyway, so we move on to January 6, 2017, where Comey meets with Trump at Trump Tower and discusses allegations in the dossier. Other people there are John Brennan, James Clapper, and Mike Rogers, the head of the DNI at the time. During that meeting in January of 2017, on January 6, um, Jim Comey actually wrote in an email that he sent to FBI officials on the next day. He said, Comey mentioned during the initial portion of the briefing a piece of Steele's reporting that indicated Russia had files on derogatory information on both Clinton and the president-elect, something that conveniently gets left out of the narrative all the time. Comey's email stated that a member of Trump's national security team asked during the briefing whether the FBI was, quote, trying to dig into the subsources, end quote, to gain a better understanding of the situation, and Comey responded in the affirmative. In other words, Comey fucking lied to this member of Trump's incoming national security team. Now, who could that have been? Well, it is reported that the member of the national security team who asked that question is, of course, General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew that this was all bullshit from the jump. How? How could he have known? He hasn't really gotten a good look at anything. He hasn't been officially in the administration yet. They're obviously doing everything they can to shield any inf any of this vital information about this scandal from Flynn. They're doing everything they can to frame Flynn and catch him in a perjury trap just to make sure that he never actually becomes the national security advisor. Well, as the incoming national security advisor, he just so happened to receive a letter from UK intelligence that reached out to him and copied Susan Rice, who I believe was the previous national security advisor under Obama, 
And in that letter, they quite clearly disavow Christopher Steele as as being a credible source, and they call his credibility into question and declare him untrustworthy. And the Obama people know that Flynn got this letter because Susan Rice got the letter too. So now Flynn's asking all these questions. He, he they, they couldn't find anything on him in the original investigation. They managed to keep it open through the thinnest of possible reasons and the potential Logan Act violation against an incoming national security advisor, which would be the most absurd application of possibly one of the most absurd laws that we have on the books. They know Flynn is onto them because he's asking all these questions. Did you guys ask any of the subsources? Like, what's going on here? Comey says, oh, yeah, yeah, we asked the subsources. No, they didn't. They never asked the subsources, because if they had asked the subsources, they would have found out what Robert Mueller's team would find out, you know, several months down the line, and that's that the subsources have no idea what Steele is talking about, which means they either lied to him or he just completely altogether fabricated stuff based on his machinations uh, of, of this plot that he so desperately wanted to provide information for. They know that Flynn is onto them. He's the most capable of bringing them down, both through his position, but also his experience. And now he's got a little bit of inside knowledge about the source of the whole investigation, which was a complete fairy tale. They need to get rid of Flynn, and they need to get rid of Flynn fast. Less than a week later, BuzzFeed publishes the dossier on January 11th, 2017. On January 12th, David Ignatius from the Washington Post writes his article, which outs Michael Flynn's conversation with the Russian ambassador. Why did Obama dawdle on Russian hacking? So if Flynn was not previously being spied on, as they're claiming, and his name was simply unmasked, as we now know to be false, then the leak of his name to the media is a felony, punishable by by up to five years in prison. You're not allowed to disclose the name of an American citizen who may have been sucked up into a surveillance trap by the intelligence community because just the mere mention of the fact that they were being surveilled by the government, even if they weren't doing anything wrong, is enough to imply that they were doing something wrong, as we've seen with Flynn, as we've seen with Trump, as we've seen with Papadopoulos, Carter Page, Paul Manafort, Roger Stone, all these people that were being spied on as soon as their name hit the media, no one was like, oh man. Maybe the FBI shouldn't be spying on those people. No, they immediately jump to the conclusion that the FBI is justified in their spying on these people and that they must be up to no good. This is how we have the millions of idiots out there who still think that this case is real. The next day, after the after the BuzzFeed article is published uh, with the dossier in it, January 12, 2017, Pentagon insider Adam Lovinger already talked about him. He blows the whistle on the fact that the Office of Net Assessments is paying Stefan Halper, which means our government was paying for some of the information in the dossier. In my opinion, they were getting evidence on demand. They were simply paying people to tell them exactly what they wanted to hear. They needed something on Flynn. Poof, a magical dossier memo shows up from Steele. They needed something on Flynn again. Oh, let's go to Halper. He's made up stuff about him in the past. Let's use that. Oh, we need some more information to fluff up this dossier. Glenn Simpson wrote an article for the Washington, uh, for the Wall Street Journal back in 2007, that accused John McCain of interacting with all these Russian guys. Let's just go ahead and put Trump's name in there and fill out this dossier with the rest of the information. Steele's name was on the dossier to provide legitimacy. He may have done some research, but he certainly didn't do all the research. He may have written some of it. He certainly didn't write all of it. He may have been a source for some of the information. He was not the source for all of the information. 
They wanted to spy on whoever they wanted to spy on, and these guys were more than happy to provide them with whatever information they thought they might need in order to make that happen. Again, Lovinger knows Flynn. He could possibly be seeing all this going on, and maybe he's a little even biased. He wants wants a position in the National Security Council. He wants to work under Flynn. These could all be motivations, but at the end of the day, I think the treatment of Lovinger when he did blow the whistle on the fact that Halper is being paid by our government to essentially spy on our incoming presidential administration, I would think that removing his security clearance and placing him under investigation is not the appropriate way to handle a whistleblower, as we've talked about already. Moving on, Trump takes office on January 20th, and weirdly enough, on that same day, Susan Rice sends herself the weirdest email maybe ever. Now, I'm somebody who emails myself all the time, so I'm not going to knack, you know, knock her too bad for that. Send myself little reminders. I send myself articles to read later. Fair enough. She's about to leave the administration. She's not going to really have access to this email address ever again. It's almost as if she's trying to place evidence on the record for something that she wants everyone to think happened. So she writes this email to herself to document the meeting that occurred more than two weeks prior on January 5th. This was not a meeting that occurred on January 19th or January 20th that she's walking out the door. This is a meeting that occurred on January 5th, the one that had all of the big names or Obama and Comey are cooking up this Logan Act thing. She writes this email 15 days after the meeting to memorialize it. She writes that Obama specifically stated he wants this investigation to continue, quote, by the book, which seems like a weird thing to say if you're always doing things by the book. She then writes, and I quote, The president asked Comey to inform him if anything changes in the next few weeks that should affect how we share classified information with the incoming team. Comey said he would, end quote. Clearly, I don't think they found anything in those two weeks other than the call, but sure enough, the FBI Still raring to go because the Trump administration has taken over. They no longer have their overlord, Barack Obama, to tell them what to do. But Comey knows exactly what to do because he's the one who cooked up this plot with Obama on the Logan Act thing. But here's the problem with the Logan Act accusation. In addition to the fact that the law itself is ridiculous, and in addition to the fact that it's ridiculous to apply it to an incoming national security advisor, and if you even remove the fact that it's probably unconstitutional, it would be overturned as soon as somebody actually was convicted of it anyway. What's the real problem there? They have the transcript already. They already have the word-for-word, verbatim conversation between... Kislyak and Flynn. So if there's any sort of Logan Act violation in that transcript, why do they need to interview him? Really, why do they need to interview him? If they know what he said, and what he said violates the Logan Act, they have everything they need to prosecute. But they're not prosecuting, because they know that it would get laughed out of a courtroom. So, they want to go interview him. But they don't want him to think that he's being interviewed as a suspect of any sort of investigation. So in addition to the fact that Andy McCabe schedules the call with him on the 24th, schedules the interview with Strzok and Pianca, sends him over there on the 24th, in addition to the fact that McCabe doesn't warn him about lying the false information, tells the agents not to warn him about providing false information, they don't tell, they tell, McCabe strongly tells him, you know, pretty much suggests, you don't really need a lawyer for this. They go around White House counsel. They don't let him see 
the actual transcript, which is protocol for the FBI to turn to turn the supposed suspect's words against them, or at a bare minimum to help them recollect better. They never show him the transcript. That transcript still has never been actually revealed to this day. They want to catch him in a lie. There's no doubt about it. Because again, there's no need to actually conduct this interview. If the, if he if he violated the Logan Act, which is the reason that they kept the case open to begin with, which again is thin and stupid, wasn't enough to open up its own investigation. They knew that. That's why they needed the old one to continue to be open. If they had a violation of the Logan Act, they didn't need to ask him about it. They had his words on paper. They had the transcript of the call. They know exactly what he said and to whom he said it. And if anything he said on that call was a violation of any law, they could have prosecuted him then and there. There's no need to go talk to him about it. But they do. And they tell him he doesn't need a lawyer. They tell him it's just a casual conversation between you know, a couple FBI agents and the incoming national security advisor. We just got some questions about this call. You know, maybe some information you could provide us about the lo- about you know about Kisliak could help us. We just want to ask you a few questions. No big deal. So for some reason, General Flynn takes the bait. Could it have anything to do with this article that appeared in the Washington Post the day before the interview? Ellen Nakashima and Greg Miller put out this article in the Washington Post on January 23, 2017. FBI reviewed Flynn's call with Russian ambassador, but found nothing illicit. Now, there's absolutely no doubt that the FBI leaked this information to the Washington Post, right? Because the FBI reviewed Flynn's calls. They're talking to somebody in the FBI, or the FBI is talking to them. They put out this article. It's in the headline. FBI reviewed Flynn's calls. Nothing to worry about here. Flynn obviously sees this, or at least catches wind of it. And so when he goes into the interview on the 24th, the very next day, his guard is about as low as it could possibly be. Again, he was told, you're not under investigation. Or at least he wasn't told he was under investigation. He wasn't told he wasn't. But they told him, you don't need counsel. It's just a conversation. No big deal. Nothing to worry about. And then he sees an article that says, oh, the FBI is not even worried about my call of Flynn uh, with Kislyak. Great. All right, cool. I guess I could go answer these boys' questions. I don't have to worry about anything. Now, it couldn't possibly be a coincidence that this article drops the day before the Flynn interview. And again, just to drive this home, McKay picks up the phone, tells Flynn, we're going to send a couple guys over to talk to you. No, no, no lawyer necessary. No, no, no warning of violating U.S. Criminal Code 1001. No, we're not going to read a Miranda. He's not under arrest. No hint in any way, shape, or form that you're actually under investigation for anything. Again, this is just a casual conversation between a couple fellows in the FBI and and an old war hero. No big deal. The Washington Post just so happens to be writing this article again the day before the interview. Also in that article, just in case the headline didn't give it away, the Washington Post states, although Flynn's contacts with Russian Ambassador Kislyak were listened to, Flynn himself is not the active target of an investigation, officials said. Which is weird, because he was, and he is, and they kept that case open on January 4th that they were about to close because he didn't have any derogatory information. They kept that open so that they can later question him about this conversation that they'd already deemed to not be illicit in any way, shape, or form. Now, the Mueller report seems to contradict the Washington Post because obviously we know of the counterintelligence investigation that was opened on August 16, 2016. I talked about that at the very beginning here. We know that case was never closed because it was about to be, but Truck was like, no, 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 no. Don't close that case. We've got one last crack to take at this. 
And here's the Mueller report. Members of the intelligence community were surprised by Russia's decision not to retaliate in response to the sanctions. When analyzing Russia's response, they became aware of Flynn's discussion of sanctions with Kislyak. Previously, the FBI had opened an investigation of Flynn based on his relationship with the Russian government. Flynn's contacts with Kislyak became a key component of that investigation. So the FBI just either completely lied to the Washington Post and said... Nothing to see here. He's not an investigation. Or they just told the Washington Post, look, we need you guys to put out an article saying that Flynn, his call is okay and that his he's not under investigation because we're about to go interview him and we need him to let his guard down so that we can get some dirt on him that we can use against him to try to get him ousted as the national security advisor. And of course, those fools at the Amazon Post are more than happy to comply. So that brings us to January 24, 2017. Peter Strzok and Joe Pianca interview Michael Flynn at the White House. The original 302, which is an FBI document that's supposed to be a, a contemporaneous report of an interview. So you fill out this document basically while you're interviewing or just after you interviewed in hopes of getting the best and most accurate contemporaneous information about that call. Or about that interview. He's not recorded during this interview either, mind you, which is another thing that's a little suspicious, but I guess maybe he would have noticed the tape recorder on the table and wondered what was going on. They were doing everything they could to not give him any indication that he was under investigation because they wanted him to lie so that they can later turn that around and charge him with lying to the FBI. So regarding the 302, James, James Comey actually testified under oath to the fact that he knows that the 302 was altered. The original 302 claimed that Flynn was not being deceptive, and we have still yet to actually see that 302 anywhere. So the later drafts of the 302, everything other than the original, is nothing short of a lie. It is Peter Strzok, as we're about to get to in a second here, rewriting the 302 to make it seem like Flynn lied. Later, as I, as I just teased, Strzok would be texting Page about how he's rewriting the 302 in such a way as to keep the person for whom he is writing's voice. Either he's talking about trying to keep Pianca's voice, the guy who actually took the notes, or keeping Flynn's voice so that he can misconstrue what Flynn actually said. Now, that means Comey and McCabe, who both helped Strzok and Pianca process this 302, that means that they were both aware of the revisions. Now, why would they allow such a thing after already having the freshest possible memory from the two interviews, right? The notes are there to be the most accurate, contemporaneous notes conceivably possible about the interview. You're writing the notes about the 302 while you're doing the interview. So you're getting, there's no time for you to forget or for you to misconstrue. You're just putting pen to paper while you're getting answers so that you know what he said so that you can later put it into an official report. But that official report was revised multiple times. Strzok is just trying to spin it to get something close enough to where it may be a lie so that they can hang it over Flynn's head in, for the purposes of hopefully getting him to turn on Trump, who they are still convinced, despite the fact that they never actually verified any of the information, that he's a Russian asset. Now, let's get back to the Amazon Post, the Washington Post, as some of you may call it, on February 9th, 2017, Ellen Nakashima and Greg Miller write another article in the Washington Post, this time saying that Flynn lied to the FBI. Suddenly, in the two weeks since they wrote that the FBI found nothing wrong with the call, 
and the FBI and the Washington Post are now claiming that Flynn had discussed sanctions with the Russians, which wasn't a problem two weeks ago, but suddenly is now. Now, why wouldn't the journalists... Now, granted, Flynn hadn't had an opportunity to make any statements about the original call yet, but why would any of his lies about the call matter if we know nothing from the call was illicit or illegal? Wouldn't these journalists at the Amazon Post ask why this is newsworthy? They were just told two weeks ago that the call was fine, and they didn't find anything wrong with the call, but suddenly these sanctions are a big deal because Flynn doesn't remember talking about them? They have the transcript. They knew what was said on the call. They said there was nothing illegal or illicit about the call. Flynn is the incoming national security advisor. This sort of stuff is totally typical. There is nothing wrong with Flynn talking to any ambassador, even the Russian ambassador, about sanctions or about votes in the UN or anything along those lines. He's about to become a cabinet member. He needs to be aware of what these things are, are happening. He's also trying to build a relationship with people around the world who he's going to have to deal with in order to best protect our national security or best enforce our national security. Now, Flynn talking about sanctions isn't illegal or illicit, and neither in this case is him lying to the FBI. I mean, first and foremost, the entire investigation is completely illegitimate from beginning to end. It's all fruit from the poisonous tree. B, the lie isn't actually material to anything because they know exactly what he said. In order for you to be convicted of providing false statements to a federal investigator, you need to provide a lie that is material to the investigation. They asked him what he had for breakfast, and he said pancakes, and they know he had waffles. They can't file a charge against him for lying to an investigator, for providing false information to an investigator, because that lie is immaterial, as is anything he said in this interview, because they have the fucking transcript already. Nothing he's going to say in this interview is going to change what he said on December 29th to Ambassador Kislyak. Nothing. And again, if any of that was illegal, they wouldn't need to interview him. They could go right ahead with prosecuting him. But the whole Logan Act thing was a joke. It was a sham. It, too, was a hoax. It was just their way of getting their foot in the door of a door that was about to close in the first investigation. And they did everything they could to set him up on any little detail about that call. If he lied or misspoke about one little thing, they were going to nail him Suddenly, the Logan Act wasn't going to matter anymore. They were going to nail him for U.S. Criminal Code 1001, which is now in play because he supposedly lied to the FBI about all of this. Now, we don't actually know that he lied to the FBI. I mean, yes, he pled guilty to it. As I've discussed in the past, he did so without knowing all of the information that was out against him. He also, you know, was, was supposedly charged with lying about sanctions, and uh, as I'll get to in part two here, it turns out that he never was actually asked about sanctions. So it's very odd that he would plead guilty to, to, to being, you know, to discussing something that he was never actually asked about. But nevertheless, on February 10th, the day after the Ellen Nakashima Greg Miller article comes out from the Washington Post about how Flynn had lied to the FBI, this article comes from Newsmax. According to the source, as supported by text messages also obtained by Newsmax Strzok, who also participated in the Flynn interview, rewrote the 302 extensively, although a text message from him stated he tried not to, quote, completely rewrite it so as to save redacted 
Redacted's voice, I, I suppose there's a possessive there, to save Redacted's voice, end quote, presumably a reference to the lead agent who originally wrote it, which in my case, which in my opinion, and, and I'm pretty sure I'm right about this, is Joseph Pianca. He was the only other person in the interview, so who else could have written it? On February 10th, 2017, Page texted Struck. This document pisses me off. You didn't even attempt to make this cogent and readable? This is lazy work on your part, referring to a draft of the 302 that he sent her to proofread. Oh my god. So now not only is he fixing it, but now he's got his girlfriend taking a look at it just to make sure that everything is good, and she's even disappointed by his work. She respond or he responds, Loverboy responds to the village bicycle of the FBI. Lisa. You didn't see it before my edits that went into what I sent you. I was, one, trying to completely rewrite this thing as to save the lead agent's voice, and two, get it out to you for general review and comment in anticipation of needing it soon. Struck is altering the 302, the official record of the actual interview with Flint. He still to this very day has not released the original 302. No one has seen it, but I think that is because... Peter Strzok didn't write it, I think, because Joseph Pianca wrote it, and that's why they don't want you to see the original 302, because Strzok was conducting the interview while Pianca was taking the notes, and that's why he's the one who wrote the 302. Pianca magically disappears after this interview, never to be seen or heard from again, but Peter Strzok is sitting there with this 302, altering it multiple times, and having his uh, mistress proofread it for him. Yeah, so... No one's seen Pianca. Struck's altering the 302s. Page is helping him with the whole process there. We still haven't seen the original 302, but on February 2014, 2017, the next day, Page texts Struck, is Andy good with the 302? Question mark. Andy, of course, is Deputy Director Andy McCabe. And Page is asking Struck, is Andy good with the 302? You know, the one that he completely fabricated from top to bottom, just rewrote everything about it. Something that is very rarely done. As a matter of fact, case agents, as I'm about to get to in a little bit here, typically don't want their 302s changed ever for any reason, regardless of who's asking it. Maybe that's why Pianca magically disappeared so that he didn't know what was being done to his work. Just throwing it out there. The 302 for Flynn, uh, for the Flynn interview, was finally submitted on February 15th, 2017. Now, FYI, the FBI policy requires that 302 forms be submitted within five working days of an interview. This was more than three weeks after the interview. Now, this is unusual, to say the least. And according to this Real Clear Politics article, in particular, former Special Agent Thomas J. Baker, it's not only unusual, it's not only frowned upon, it's never done. Like, ever. Here he is, from the article, and I quote, We never changed an agent's 302. An agent would fight a supervisor who wanted him to change the 302 because it's what that agent observed and heard in his interview. So for us to read what's documented in this new material, that coming back from that interview with Flynn, which is a key event, that Peter Strzok said he virtually rewrote the whole thing, it damned them with their own words. End quote. And from that same article, by the way, all these articles are in the show notes, so feel free to check them out for yourselves. Even after the Flynn 302 is collectively written during the weeks-long delay in submission, the original wasn't initially used in the case. Instead, Baker said, Mueller's team submitted their own interview with Strzok about his recollection of the interview with Flynn 
five or six months ago. Now, that's just bizarre. So why is that weird? So, all right, so Flynn was in the interview January 24, 2017. Flynn is interviewed by Strzok and Pianca. Pianca disappears. He's a fucking ghost. He's Joseph Mifsud. He's Biggie. He's Pac. He's just gone. He's living on an island somewhere sipping Mai Tais, maybe with Barack Obama. I like my Mai Tais. Yes, I know you do. Anyway, um, so instead of using the original 302, which the Mueller report had to have recognized would have been the only 302 to use, because if there's multiple drafts of a 302, the only one that should matter is the original. And Mueller's team probably knows that. So rather than use any of the 302s, particularly the one that they're hiding from all of us, Mueller instead interviews Strzok six, five, six months after the interview and asks him about his recollections of the interview rather than looking at the actual contemporaneous notes of what happened at that time in that interview. Very weird. It's a very, very odd choice. That is just bizarre, to quote Special Agent, former Special Agent Thomas Baker. Now, here's where we get into the lie about the sanctions, quote-unquote. Worth note that in the actual charging document, they claim that Flynn lied about Executive Order 13757, and uh, that was quoted in the charging document as, quote, U.S. sanctions. Also, at that time, the Russians that were expelled from the U.S., and were designated persona non grata. So there's three different things there. They were expelled from the U.S., they were sanctioned, and they were designated persona non grata. Three separate issues there. And sure enough, in the 302, even the one that was edited multiple times by Strzok with the help of Page, it never, ever mentions the word sanctions. Never mentions the word sanctions. They never asked about sanctions. They asked about expulsions. They asked about whether or not those people that were considered persona non grata had anything to do with Flynn's conversation with Kislyak, and he wasn't sure, and he answered, to their knowledge, truthfully, because they claimed, even in their original 302, which we've yet to see, but we know from testimony that they had originally determined that the FBI didn't think Flynn was lying to them. They saw no physical signs of deception. They had no reason to believe that anything he was saying to them was untoward. He mentions the expulsions. He mentions talking to Kislyak with the expulsions, but he never mentions talking about the sanctions. They never ask about the sanctions, but he never says, I did or didn't talk about the sanctions. He said, I talked about the expulsions, which was part of the same package of penalties that was doled out to Russia that day, but is not the same thing as the sanctions. That's the 302 they kept revising. We still haven't seen the original, and that's probably because it's even more damning than this, you know, completely bafflingly edited version of the 302, which still doesn't really prove their case, but they kept pushing it out there. Maybe, maybe this was in an attempt to keep it in the voice of the person, yada, 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 that Shruck was talking about with Page. But you've already altered a document that really has no business being altered, and you've altered it in any conceivable way to try to make your case look more legitimate, and it still doesn't look all that legitimate. Anyway, just to let you know that the sanctions are a separate thing from the expulsions. I got a couple articles here for you real quick. February 16th, 2017, the Washington Post writes an article with the headline, Flynn in FBI interview denied discussing sanctions with Russian ambassador. This is not written by Ellen Nakajima, written by Ellen Nakajima, and I'm rather surprised. In the article, 
From the Washington Post, headline, Flynn in FBI interview denied discussing sanctions with Russian ambassador. I think I'd mentioned that already. Anyway, the article itself says, in a recent interview with the Daily Caller, Flynn said he didn't discuss sanctions, in quotes, but did discuss the Obama administration's expulsion of 35 Russian diplomats it said were intelligence operatives. The move was part of the sanctions package it announced on December 29th. So the sanctions are one thing. The rest of the package is another thing. The expulsions, the closing of embassies, these things are separate from sanctions. Sanctions are sanctions, expulsions are expulsions. Flynn draws the delineation here in this conversation, and surely the FBI, if they didn't think there was a distinction between the two of them, Strzok and Pianka, if they weren't trying to trap him in a perjury trap, could have clarified that in the interview, saying, oh, those are all really one and the same thing. And Flynn could have said, I didn't really consider them one and the same thing, and now we're talking about of a difference of opinion, not providing false information. By the way, Flynn wasn't the only one who thought there was a difference between the two. Back in December of 2016, when the Russians were expelled by Obama, the New York Times wrote the following. Under the headline, Obama strikes back at Russia for election hacking. The article says, and I quote, The Obama administration struck back at Russia on Thursday for its efforts to influence the 2016 election ejecting 35 Russian intelligence operatives from the United States and imposing sanctions on Russia's two leading intelligence services, including four top officers of the military intelligence unit. The White House believes ordered the attacks on the DNC and other political organizations. So the Obama administration struck back at Russia on Thursday for its efforts to influence yada, 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 ejecting 35 Russian operatives and imposing sanctions, ejecting and sanctions. Not the same thing. So even the New York Times recognized that there was a difference between the two, but in the in the 302 that even the FBI had revised a bunch of times, they never talk about sanctions. Flynn even recognizes, I talked about expulsions. I didn't talk about sanctions. He was never asked about sanctions, and yet he was charged with lying about sanctions. It's all nonsense. This whole case is ridiculous. They had nothing. They, they had, you know, just take a step back here. They investigated this guy for four to five months. They turned up no derogatory information. So they interview him about a perfectly legal call that they already had the transcript for on a thinly veiled charge of a Logan Act violation, which is really just nonsense. There's no way they were ever going to get that to stick, even if they caught him red-handed, because... Again, the law itself is ridiculous, but more importantly, even more ridiculous when being applied to an incoming national security advisor. You got struck alter in paperwork. You've got Obama and Comey putting together this Logan Act plot to keep an existing investigation open because they know it wouldn't be enough to formally reopen that investigation based on that being new information or open a brand new investigation, which would have just been clearly laughed out of any courtroom if they tried to push forward with that, and frankly, would be such a gross misuse of time and resources as it ultimately ended up being that there would probably be some serious oversight done into the intelligence community if that's the type of thing that they're investigating about their political rivals. So Flynn framed from the get-go, man, they were looking to get rid of him because of what he knew and because of how he knew it, and because he's been experienced, and because he's been in the military, and he's been in the intelligence community, he knows all the tricks. He's on Trump's side. He was never a fan of Obama. Didn't like his Iran policy. Didn't like his Afghanistan policy. Didn't like that the intelligence community was being politicized right under his nose, if not at his bequest. 
Flynn was public enemy number one, more so than Donald Trump even, because Trump, while I love him, he's a little bit aloof. He doesn't know anywhere near what Flynn knows about the military, about the intelligence community, and frankly, you know, I don't think they ever really thought he was going to win, and then once he won, I guess they thought that they would be able to get rid of him pretty quickly, and then frankly, even more so, they thought he was just a doof and that he was never going to really put any of this stuff together, but Flynn knows. He knows all the tricks, he knows where all the bodies are buried, and it's all starting to come out now, and that's where I'm going to wrap it up here for this week. So we got from the beginning of the investigation all the way to what they actually supposedly caught him doing. Part two, we go into the legal battle. We're going to go into the court case. We're going to go into Robert Mueller and all that sort of stuff. Where does this go from here? Flynn is framed. He's set up. He's entrapped in a perjury trap about a perfectly legal call about being questioned about sanctions he was never actually questioned about this guy was jobbed from beginning to end and for what because he's a patriot because he knows that the obama administration was up to no good and he would have been able to prove it with relative ease given his access and experience yeah it certainly seems that way we're going to find out what the government does in part two as we get into the guilty plea why it's you know no longer valid, what the DOJ had to say about it, and all of the shifty moves that Mueller's team, and for that matter, even Flynn's original attorneys pulled in order to drag this out to the point to where we are today, which is potentially on the precipice of Flynn being formally exonerated. Now, anybody who's been following this case knows now unequivocally the man has been exonerated. It's just whether or not Judge Sullivan who we'll be talking about a quite a bit in part two, is going to actually follow through and dismiss the case against him as the DOJ has instructed him to do. I think he will, but I don't think that's going to stop him from making a circus of all this in the meantime. So stay tuned. The part two could change as we're getting close. I'm going to try and put this all together and hopefully leave it open-ended enough to where maybe if I got to come back for part three to figure out exactly how Judge Sullivan screwed over Michael Flynn, but I'm thinking... He's going to make a circus of this whole thing. He's going to bring in his outside judge to argue against dismissing the case and to argue for potentially charging Michael Flynn with perjury for his original guilty plea, which would be an absurd precedent to set. And as a matter of fact, I'm sure there are precedents out there in the legal world that would show that you can't really do that anyway. Somebody pleads guilty. And then it turns out that the FBI was withholding information or the government was withholding information that could have led them to plead not guilty. I would think that the guilty plea would be null and void regardless of whether or not he lied in the process of making it. Because let's face it, all plea bargains in some way, shape or form are lies, right? Like you're you're never fully pleading guilty to exactly what you did in most scenarios. You're pleading to a lesser charge, which you probably didn't commit. So... Guilty pleas in and of themselves, I think, are perjury in a roundabout sort of way, but it's perjury with the consent of the court, so we kind of all just look the other way on it, even though it happens all the time. But Judge Sullivan's going to make a circus of this. General Flynn's legal team is going to do everything they can to make sure that he does eventually sign the document, which I will go over, from the DOJ that says, we're going to go ahead and drop this case. It's a 20-pager. I will go over it in a pretty pretty minutiae detail, actually. I've got a lot of highlights on it, but we're going to get to that document leading off um, from February of 2017, getting into the Mueller investigation, and then to the court battle and all that will be in part two of the Michael Flynn saga right here on the therightopinion.podbean.com. If you guys got any questions about any of this, please hit me up on Twitter, 
Instagram, Parlor, and Minds at Right Opinion Pod. Email the show if it's a lot longer than that. The Right Opinion Pod at gmail.com. If you've got questions, concerns, comments, maybe I missed something, maybe you're confused about something, please let me know I'm here to get this information to you so that you can absorb it. And if I'm not doing that properly, I'm willing to take time out of my day to make sure that it does get driven home. I'm not trying to talk down anybody. There's a lot of fucking information here. This has been driving me crazy for like, well, I mean, realistically years. But the last couple of weeks doing the research on this, man, anybody who knows me could tell you I've been like, I've been deep diving into this. I've listened to so much Bongino. I've read so many articles. I've read just so much information about this. It's actually starting to drive me crazy that this was ever allowed to happen in the first place. And I hope that even if a few of you come out of this realizing what an absolute sham this whole thing was and what an absolute cesspool the Obama administration was, I've done my job. And I hope that you can maybe spread that information out to friends and family members, coworkers, loved ones of yours. And maybe, just maybe, we can win the day on this whole information warfare that we've got going on right now. The information laundering in D.C. is disgusting, as is targeting a former three, uh, three-star general, a former intelligence community head and an incoming national security advisor because you don't like the fact that he's just smart enough to figure out that you're dumb enough to try to pull all this shit and thought you were going to get away with it. They never thought they were going to lose. That's really what it comes down to. Hillary Clinton was going to be elected and none of this was ever going to see the light of day. But that didn't happen. And they got screwed. They screwed themselves. Then they thought they were so convinced they were going to be able to get Trump out of office that they just continued to do shit even after they knew Hillary was going to lose. Or Hillary had lost at that point. They had to cover their tracks. They got desperate. And Obama knew the media was going to be covering his ass the entire way. And they still are to this day. Twitter's banned hashtag Obamagate. Now you got to go to Obamagate gate if you want to even get it anywhere near the top of the trends. They haven't banned it. They just have shadow banned it, I guess, because it's not trending, even though many of people are tweeting about it. Even people on the left who are mocking it, they're still tweeting about it. Those tweets should register and it should end up in trends, but it's not because they don't want you to know about it because they know that the Obama administration was corrupt from top to bottom and Honestly, at this point, maybe they throw Obama under the bus. He hasn't exactly been helpful for them over the last couple of years. We ended up with Joe Biden as a result, and he's going to lose in hysterical fashion. So maybe they're willing to throw Obama under the bus, but in doing so, they would be throwing themselves under the bus because they took a nap for eight years while this guy got away with the most inconceivable corruption at the highest office in the land in every in every way, shape, or form, foreign policy, intelligence community, you know, drones of spying on journalists and targeting conservative organizations through the uh, IRS and selling guns to Mexican cartels, allowing Hezbollah to sell drugs here in the United States. This guy was corrupt as corrupt gets, and the media just took a nap on it because they didn't want to come off as racist because by their own standard, if you ever were to criticize Barack Obama, it was because he hated black people. And that was the world that they painted for themselves, and they fell right into it. And as a result, they let some of the biggest scandals in the history of the United States go right by them because it was their boy, and they didn't want to report on it. Meanwhile, Donald Trump, if somebody sneezes within a quarter mile of him and he doesn't say, God bless you, it turns into a national crisis. The media are sick, as are these people in the FBI and the DOJ and the former Obama administration. All of these people are, by my account, traitors, and they should be dealt with accordingly. I'm just going to leave that there.
Anyway, last but not least, let me go ahead and just tell you where to find me on Twitter, on Parler, on Instagram, and on Minds at Right Opinion Pod. Be sure to send emails to the show, like I mentioned before, the right opinion pod at gmail.com and check out the right opinion.podbean.com or just search the right opinion on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Also available at hackerhameen.podbean.com. It's the Hameen Media Group and ratsaladreview.com. That is ratsaladreview. Check out both of those fine platforms for some entertainment. Uh, Hacker Hameen does a lot of pro wrestling, conspiracy theories, free thought, pop culture, all that sort of stuff. Rat Salad Reviews got all of your rock and roll, metal, and above and beyond that. So check out both of those platforms. Check out the rightopinion.podbean.com. Check me out on Twitter, Instagram, Parlor Minds, all that good stuff. And come on back for part two of the Michael Flynn saga right here on The Right Opinion. Anyway, I gotta remind you guys that opinions are like assholes. Everybody's got one, but this asshole has the right opinion, you can only get it right here on The Right Opinion. I'll talk to you guys next time. Peace. Be the elephant in the room in a room full of elephants. Be the elephant in the room in a room full of elephants. Boom. Boom.